You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. Perhaps one of the most distinctive and evocative sounds at the Ferbier Festival is the audience bell at the Salle de Combat. The concert space sighted at one end of the village a 10-minute trot from the roundabout in the centre. There is a relentless inevitability about the Verbier audience bell, as opposed to the hectoring voices and ominous gongs which often serve the same purpose in British concert halls, which despite it being in the major key still makes me feel unusually sad. There is something else rather clever about it which I hadn't noticed until I recorded it and dropped it into a timeline. Each successive ring gets slower and slower and slower until presumably the last member of the audience has made it into the auditorium and the doors can then be sealed shut. Given that there are around about 1,500 seats in the auditorium, the harpist must be exhausted at the end of it. This episode is not about Verbier's audience bell, you will no doubt be relieved to hear. Instead, it features festival director Martin Engström, former artist agent and quick-witted Swede, talking about his work as leader of the festival. The angle was inevitable, really. The podcast, the blog and the videos... In fact, any piece of thoroughly good content about classical music is something of a compensatory act for the decision I took back in 1997 when I left the Albra Festival and Arts Administration in search of money and, as it later turned out, my now partner of 22 years. I wanted to get a sense from Martin what had marked him out for leadership. I wanted to work out what mindset he had which had helped him be successful over the years and I wanted to know what he looked for in artists. The former head of Deutsche Grammophon shared insights into how the record industry works, why he moved from artist management to artist directorship, and quite unexpectedly we ended up stumbling on quite a connection five minutes before the end of the interview. My children, I have four, I have three grandchildren, um, I, uh, when I see the expectation in the face of many of those students who come to Verbier, you know, before the festival I just realized something, I, the festival is 26 years old, there are many and, and we streamed the concerts with Medici in 13. So there's a whole generation who's grown up with Verbier Festival and looking at the streaming on the concerts, uh, on the computers. And uh, um, Sergei Redkin, a young Russian pianist, uh, a couple of days ago, he told me he went into the church and he said, this is like... I have arrived. I've been watching this church for ages. All these fantastic concerts. Lang Lang played there, Yuja Wang played there, Trifonov played there. I mean, so many people have played in this church. And I always wished I would be there one day. And that sort of opened up a lot of eyes for me because it's true, it's sort of a shrine for musicians and thanks to Medici they've sort of put this little <coughs> not very attractive church on the map. You don't, you don't, think, it's very, you don't <laughs> think it's very attractive? I, I mean obviously you're being slightly jocular, you wouldn't, I, you wouldn't say that about a venue in, in the town where you're I think is. it's bloody uncomfortable <laughs> and um, acoustic is good Yes. The acoustic is good, which is, I suppose, the main thing. But I think that, so personally, I think that unorthodoxy about the venue is one of its really appealing features, because for me, as a Brit who is normally, who is used to sort of walking places where it's reasonably flat, yeah. here I have to climb quite a steep hill yeah. to go to 
sit in a church that's quite dark with uncomfortable benches and actually the sense of commitment that you need in order to listen to the music is is baked in by the time you get to the venue so i don't really mind about that okay well so you know well done you (laughs) um did you at what point did you stop to take stock of what you had achieved verbia um you know i'm the father and when you have a child you don't really you're too close to see him grow up you you watch him but you're you get the information from others you know people said i had your son for dinner yesterday he's so well brought up and you sort of say what <laughs> my son is this a metaphor? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, right. It's a metaphor. So, uh, it's. Uh, I think the festival makes lots of people happy. I think there are lots of people who enjoy being here, who comes back year after year. There's a real sense of community. Also because Verbier is a dead end. Nobody happens to be here. You have to make an effort to come here. And uh, that makes it very special. Why do you do what you do? You know, I used to be, I've done every job in in this classical music business. And um, one of the more frustrating ones was to be an agent. I was an agent for 12 years in Paris. And I had good artists. We had the general management of Carl Böhm, of Birgit Nilsson, Leonie Rusanek, Marty Tyler, Lucia Pop, uh, Gruberova, a whole generation of fantastic singers. I was the first agent of Giuseppe Sinopoli. Uh, I had a whole um, generation of American singers, Neil Shikov, Sam Raimi, Barbara Hendricks, Lawrence Quivar, um, Leona Mitchell. Just, there was just a, a wave of young American singers in the 70s and 80s who took over Europe, Jesse Norman, and um, but being an agent, you're always in the middle between the organizer and the artist. And if you have your own ideas, you better shut up because if you want your ten percent or fifteen percent, it doesn't help. So, in order to d- make deals, you just go ahead. Sometimes you don't like conformity. You don't like to conform. I, I have lots of ideas, and uh, those ideas I could freely implement up here in the mountains. And why is that important to you? Because I, I was never, um, yeah, my father was a sculptor, my mother was a music producer. I was always a free spirit. And um, it's, uh, I like to be creative. It sort of gives a purpose to life. And uh, I like to create things. I like to create things for others, and, but also for myself. I like to challenge people around me. What drew you to those particular artists, or did they come to you? The artists we have here? Uh, when you were an agent. Um... My partner was uh, Mr. Hilbert, Sherminal Hilbert, and uh, we started agents in 1975. Um, I stayed with him for, for seven years, but we were he was born in Bayreuth, so his speciality was Wagner, Strauss. Um, I, was, um, I was married then to Barbara Hendricks. Her repertoire was a little bit lighter, so we complemented um ourself i i've always been um, interested in uh, in discovering talent pure talent the the actual talent interests me and because the talent is god given but then it lands in a soul somewhere and then it's up to that person to develop it and um how does that function, and how does that um, 
how does it all come together? And that's always fascinated me. I probably made about a thousand auditions over the 12 years I lived in Paris, auditions of mainly singers. Um, and then uh, and then I picked those ones my left knee told me. Your left knee? My left knee. That's how you say it in Swedish. Oh, I see. Oh, how, how charming. <laughs> <laughs> what a charming way of describing intuition. Okay, right. <laughs> Well, is that a joke? Are you no, no. Oh, no, no, it's a real it thing. A, it is a real it thing. It is a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry <laughs> on. <laughs> and um, and how you accompany that talent, and how you help that talent to achieve its uh, maximum. Uh, and uh, I still do that. I still do a lot of it, even more than before. I'm often on the on different juries. I was head of Deutsche Grammophon for six years. I, I signed Lang Lang. Who? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry, I couldn't resist I that. I signed uh, Anna Netrebko. I, I, um, I think I have a good sense of putting my finger on a talent and seeing the potential in it. What do you see when you put your finger on it? Personality. Um, does that artist tell me something? Um, in his playing um, what does he want what does he want to achieve um, a successful audition is not just listening to somebody it's also talking to the person um, where does he come from where does he want to go um, why is he doing what he's doing uh, there are lots of things which needs to come together so in the individuals that pose actually pose more questions. Do they answer questions for you? Do they just pose questions? No, no, I'm asking those yeah, questions. Okay. And uh, it's just to get the whole picture because I've often, not often, I have a couple of times in my career worked for artists who were basically not interested in a career, who were fantastic performers, but... They didn't have the zest to conquer the world. And it's quite frustrating when an agent wants more than the artist. Mm. But I, can, I imagine that, that one's heart would sink. Because it's like, well, I don't really know how to sell you. If you, don't want, if you don't want this, then how can I possibly sell you? Right, right. And it's, uh, it's, but you have all kinds of people out there. So... Um, but when it all comes together, it's fascinating. Do you need to connect with them emotionally? Do you need to get on with them? Do you have to like them? Because you've listed a lot of criteria there, which I totally recognise. But, but does, does ticking all of those boxes necessarily lead to you liking them? Or can you tick all of those boxes and not like the individual? I'm not getting you to, ask, uh, to suggest names. No. Um, of course, the, the, the sympathy has to be there because... I'm in the business of human relations. Mm. I'm in the business of communication. And um, you have to um, you have to have a certain sympathy for for the artist you engage or for the artist you decide to spend time with. Um, there were some artists who uh, especially one artist, one singer I I thought was absolutely amazing and she had a big success and uh, we worked together for three years but after three years I just couldn't stand it any longer I uh, because the sense of uh, tension in uh, I expected to be aggressed like around each corner uh, okay. and uh, because she's quite assertive then is that yeah right? so um, at the end when an I told her I, I couldn't take this any longer. I, you know, I told her, you know, I'm I'm on your side. I'm here to work for you in order for you to develop, in order for you to make lots of money, in order for you to have a great career. And you just, you know, push me down all the time. So it's not really um, a, a great relationship. And How did that conversation go? <laughs> she just said, I wish you had decided this earlier. Oh, okay. Right. Well, then that's, that's sort of... 
proved the point that, yeah. that you had yes. already got. And when was this in your career? Was this quite early on? 1980. So quite early on. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That took a certain amount of bravery on your part or was it just something that needed to be done and so you did it it's uh, my partner was furious with me because the singer was very famous and um, he said at least you could have spoken to me about it we could have figured out something but I just said hey life is too short you there must be some emotional value in working for artists and how soon after uh, that was 1981 and you started Verbier in 1991? Four. I started putting it together in 1991. First summer was 1994. And was that the sort of first artistic endeavour? I, no, I appreciate no. there would have been other... No, other no, ones. no, no. It, it was just to put my foot down and to say that artists are, you know, wonderful. They, We all love artists, but... Being an agent, you often see the backside, and it's not always that shiny. No, no, no. And <laughs> sorry, so sorry. You um, cope with it for a while, but and you know, if you have a small agency, you're dependent on that artist because that mm. artist probably brings lots of commission in. But if you have a little bigger agency, uh, you can afford to say. Listen, go and scream to other people. It's this is not the place. At that point, how did you feel when you sort of put your foot down? Great, <laughs> right, liberated. Right, okay, okay. Uh, so, tell me about your best boss ever. I've only ever had one boss. I've created my own. I'm an entrepreneur. I've created my own jobs since I was a teenager, but I was um, uh, not headhunted, but I was, uh, somebody suggested me here for the job of Deutsche Grammophon, and um, I had three meetings with the head of Universal Classics and Jazz, his name was Chris Roberts, and um, he... um, um, he lived in New York. My Deutsche Grammophon head office was in uh, Hamburg. And being head of, artistic head of Deutsche Grammophon is a very lonely job. Is it? I could imagine that it's like being a, a politician because you have advisors around you the whole day who tells you different things. So in signings, for instance, I wanted to sign... Lang Lang and six months earlier we had signed Yundi Lee because he won the Chopin competition so there was an automatic debut recording for but people around me said you know one Chinese is enough Um, this is this guy Lang Lang is uh, we really don't need him and there's so many others pianists (laughs) which are so much more sellable and there was always this question of a home market every artist needed a home market when you sign an artist you cannot sign somebody who is not known everywhere there has to be one market where there is some income from Mm -hmm. which makes sense Mm -hmm. and China is an incredible country but they only sold copies of records Uh, I remember traveling there once and I saw they sold records. There's no record shops at that time. This was 1980s, 1990s. Uh, They sold them on the street. And there was uh, a record of um, Barbara Streisand on Deutsche Grammophon. Because the logic is that Deutsche Grammophon is very famous and Barbara Streisand is very famous. And putting them two together makes a very sellable product but it was a, a, a pirate copy so Barbara Streisand has never ever recorded anything with Deutsche Grammophon so it's um, and uh, 
would strike me as a slightly un- unlikely signing as well. Exactly. For but for, for the Chinese, they just see <laughs> what's prestige. Barbara Streisand is prestige, Deutsche Grammophone is prestige, so it's a double prestige. So at that point, Lang Lang didn't have that market, that domestic market. Not That's at all. Not at all. And even with, uh, when I signed Anna Netrebko, my, my boss said, uh, do you really want to do this? And my uh, colleague at DECA said, uh, you know, there's never been an, a Russian artist soloist selling records. They had solo albums with uh, uh, Gorchakova, with Olga Borodina, with Dmitry Vorostovsky. None of them sold solo records. So si- taking another Russian to, to, um, to Deutsche Grammophon. And also, uh, don't forget that Deutsche Grammophon has never ever before had a solo album by a soprano. Katia Ricciarelli never did a solo album. Mirella Freni never did a solo album. And um, so signing a Russian artist out of nowhere, um, it's really you get pressure from the marketing division, you get pressure from your artistic uh, team saying, well, if we want to sign an artist, a, a soprano, this one is much better and this one had much more success and again Anna Netrebko was a Russian, she had no home market, there's no, there's no, no classical sales in Russia. So um, and I asked my boss and he asked him please to go and listen to her, which he did and he said I don't see it, but it's your responsibility, you're the artistic director, you have a budget do what you think is right. And um, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So, Did you uh, expect him to say that? I mean, is that what you were looking for him to say? Or were you looking for him to say, yes, okay, we'll sign him? Well, I was looking for a little bit more support. Right. That's <laughs> at, at <laughs> Something slightly more obvious. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, would okay, say, she's a good one. <laughs> yeah, she looks fantastic, <laughs> right. and she really has a beautiful voice. And, uh, you know, I... I can see what you are looking for. Well, I can see what you are seeing. But just saying, I don't see it. You're on your own. But I support you. So there was trust there. It was trust in me. Yes, That's which why is surely he, the most important thing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. That's why he was a great boss. you have made the wrong exactly. decision. <laughs> That's why he yeah. was a great boss. And he stood up to, to everybody else around him who thought that I was crazy. Uh, so what do you think he saw... Uh, this is going to sound, with a British turn of phrase, it's going to sound awful, but I'm going to say it anyway. What do you think that he saw in you? Uh, well, he, when I started Deutsche Grammophon was 1999, so I had five years of Verbier behind me. Um, he, um, he saw what I had started here. He saw that I, I had... Um, not a position, but people knew me in classical music, and I had a certain respect. And um, so he, um, being artistic director of a big company, uh, record company, is quite tricky because, as I said, everybody has an opinion, and you, in 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 artistic decision, there cannot be a democratic consensus. Somebody has to, uh, you know, take the leadership and say, this is where we go. That's why the Verbia Festival is also so strong, because I'm the lone, uh, I'm the lone decider. There's nobody else. I never have to ask anybody. Um, Because once you start discussing uh, a talent or an interpretation you can discuss afterwards, but the public has to know who makes these decisions. Who is um, behind inviting this person? And uh, so I think it's important that there's one person and that person might fail, make bad decisions. You know, I also signed a boy violinist. I thought was fantastic, is fantastic. His name is Ilya Gringolds. And uh, I made three records with him and none of them sold. And I still he, he think he's fantastic, but he had no 
commercial success. And which, when you're in the record business, you need both. You need to have quality and commercial success. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, when I was working, I worked in arts management around about the time that you started uh, Verbier, uh, and I didn't last very long because it was very poorly paid. Uh, but somebody who I worked with, who now den denies this conversation ever happened, but somebody I worked with once uh, shouted to me across the office when we were working particularly hard one day. She said, the thing about you and I, John, is that we're not mover and sh movers and shakers, so we'll never succeed. And um, I, I remember sitting there thinking, well, speak for yourself. Uh, don't speak for me. What I am fascinated by is how it is that people like yourself, uh, and I know others like you, uh, embark on this path very early on uh, because they have identified that that's what they want to do. I mean, that's the impression that I get from your sort of career, that very early on, that's certainly the story that's told about your career, that very early on you set up concerts in Stockholm, um, <clears throat> and then that led on to artist management, and then that essentially led on to, to festivals. Um, are you able to answer that question about where it comes from? You know, I think all of us who love classical music uh, are... Uh, we can be grateful if we can make a living in the in this world. Um, it's not very much money in it. We are not performing artists, but we are passionate about something. And that is a gift, that you can be passionate about something and have that as your profession. There's so many people around us who have their profession and then their private life or their passions are elsewhere it's but we can combine it and I think we can be very very grateful for it and then it's up to each of us to find the slot that fits the personality um, I always like to organize I was always since I was a kid organizing things and putting things together and uh, and uh, I played the piano, but luckily I stopped in time. <laughs> because what you were not quite as good as you'd hoped? I would probably be a piano teacher out in the Swedish province somewhere. Okay, right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I have a sore throat. Uh, what have you particularly enjoyed about this year's festival? I realise it's not over yet, but... Uh, again, the, we have 300 uh, students here between 13 and uh, 30, for which Verbier is a destination. It's uh, a place they, they have auditioned for, they have travelled far from, they have been... Um, they arrive here... It's it's like unreal world for them. Primarily because the station is so intimate. It's, we're not really in a town. In a town you're anonymous once you close the door behind you. Here you're not really because you bump into people all the time. Artists kissing you meet in the supermarket. Uh, uh, yeah. goes. It's a, it's a bit weird. It's a bit of a weird thing to experience. I saw Gergiev in five concerts. Yeah, not his own ones, no. but he literally likes to go to concerts. Does he go to the co-op? Do you know? Uh, I don't think he went <laughs> to the. Or does he the, send people to go to the co-op? Uh, no, he doesn't cook for himself. <laughs> he, uh, but it's uh, it's a very special atmosphere. And um, sometimes I try to see it in the eyes of the students to see what's missing or what I can do better or what I can develop. But it's uh, an enormous satisfaction for me to see that it has become such a important part in their lives. Was that the original vision? I've seen a clip of you talking about the original vision and I'm wondering whether it's something that you did absolutely draw up 
or whether it's something that has just naturally evolved? I, my vision, and I grew up with Aspen, Colorado. Aspen is a music festival which started in 1949 and was conceived by a, um, a very rich businessman who, who had a, a little house in Lodge, I think it's called, in uh, Aspen, and who decided that this is a fantastic place to, to, to make people talk about what had happened during the war, to develop different art forms, to reach out. Rubinstein was there in 49, Albert Schweitzer, um, I think even Casals came there. It's uh, people who had been suffering during the war, but also people who had something to say about how to move forward together. So it was founded on a humanitarian idea and it de developed more uh, to a um, to, um, platform for young musicians to, um, to um, develop their art form. Aspen is about 10 weeks long and they had about uh, in their high days when I was in the business in the 70s and 80s, uh, thousand young musicians, there, fi uh, five, seven orchestras. Wow. And um, it was Over a, 10 weeks. Yeah. So it was, uh, God, it was like a factory. Organizing that, yeah. <laughs> it's like a factory. It was uh, enormous. But all these American festivals, you know, Tanglewood is eight, eight weeks and uh, Robin Hood Dale and uh, Saratoga, they're all long, long festivals. But so the the idea, the mission of, uh, of Aspen, uh, um, I thought was interesting. So what I created here in the beginning, it was called the Verbi Festival Academy, a summer performing arts community. And we had, music was important, but we also had a big theater academy, dance academy, modern dance. And uh, I tried to combine the three on a regular basis that there were some performances with <coughs> music and dance or with theater and, uh, and um, music and uh, but I mean this was 25 years ago 26 years ago so I've evolved people have um, people around me have changed and but unfortunately it's become a little bit too commercial because the things I did in the beginning I did because they were absolutely crazy ideas and they were amazing <laughs> uh, things which and I didn't at all look at ticket sales or or income I mean the first year I lost 400,000 francs and the second year, I lost uh, eight hundred thousand francs. Oops! So, uh, oops! <laughs> as you say. So after the second festival, I had a accumulated deficit of one point two million. Oh dear God! And uh, so I had to start thinking that, hmm, okay, fine, we're on the map now. People see that there are big things happening up here, but but I isn't that part of a five-year strategy, though? I'm 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 throwing you a bone here. Isn't that isn't isn't Aren't you always going to lose money to begin with, and then over time, you're you know, going I, to I, get it back? I think that, in general, in general terms, every museum, every orchestra, every festival has been founded by a, a visionary, somebody who doesn't look at money, somebody who has an idea, who went against the walls and just said, this is what we need to do this is the right way forward this is what what I see and <clears throat> you cannot th thinking strategically you cannot think uh, about um, you know where's the money coming from in five years or in three years where's the you just you have a vision and you go for it and um, if it lasts five years fantastic if it lasts 10 years, you're pretty 
probably pretty sure that it would last 11 years. <laughs> so, uh, so, so the, the question to follow up with on that was that the, the rather unhelpful clip that I saw on the internet uh, with you on CNN uh, where you were talking about meeting the man from Nestle, I think. Yeah. Uh, and he looked at his watch and said, you've only got 20 minutes. And by the way, our, our sponsorship department doesn't want to, doesn't want to bank this. Um, I, it's, I'm not interested in what you said to him in those 20 minutes. I'm more interested in how you approached that conversation and what you did. Because basically when people say no to me, I'll sort of go, yeah, but come on. Um, and it makes me feel very uncomfortable. I'm an adjutant. I'm a pain in the arse, basically, I think. <laughs> uh, certainly ask anybody at the BBC, and I think they would probably agree. Um, but I'm wondering what you did with him in order to buy him round in 20 minutes. When he left, I, uh, he died last year. I dedicated the festival, the 25th festival in his, uh, for him. But when he left Nestle as president CEO, I called the secretary, I said, can I please meet him before he leaves? And she said, do you have a problem? And I said, no. <laughs> Slightly suspicious. <laughs> no, well, Swiss. <laughs> she, she was used to me calling and say, I have a problem. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So I said, uh, no, I just need a coffee with him. 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll see what I can do. She called me back and said, yeah, come at this moment. I said, Mr. Maucher, you're leaving now and I don't know when we'll see each other. Just tell me, why did you say yes? Because my experience is that CEOs in general don't make any decisions. <laughs> they delegate. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. They say, this is for the marketing department, uh, sponsoring a festival marketing department, or um, and they have their budget, so I will set up a meeting for you and you can meet them and present your thing there. But he actually listened to me and said, you have your money, 20 minutes. And I just wanted to know why, why, why would you do that? He never met me before, he, uh, he, um, also, my experience is that CEOs don't really read <laughs> proposals. You were being funny, <laughs> you? You're, you're actually being... Okay, that made me laugh for all the wrong reasons. Okay. You know, that they, you send a proposal to them and... They haven't got time. They don't have time. They, they just time pass pants. it on. Yes. And, but accepting to see me must have meant that there was a grain of interest. I mean, granted... He was a man of culture. He went to Salzburg every summer. He uh, had a big art collection. You he, knew that, obviously. Not really. I you haven't made oh, any okay. background oh, checks or oh, anything like that. Research. I just saw Nestle. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> wow, okay. And Nestle is Swiss. <laughs> Nestle is uh, yeah, was moneyed. In, in the <laughs> same town. The lake. <laughs> yeah, okay. in the same town I lived in. And uh, Nestle was sponsoring lots of things. Right. And so I f figured... You know, they can sponsor me too. Mm. And, um, but of course I was naive and I had no ideas. What I know today, I didn't know then. But um, so he said, uh, when you started talking, I was fascinated by your conviction of what you were saying. You hadn't done any of those things you were talking about, but you knew exactly where you were going. And you knew artistically how you were going to put it together and my questions were answered and then he stopped for a while and you're tall and I trust tall people so I said he was tall I was tall yeah okay he right. said what you're tall and how and tall I are you 193 yeah what's that in feet now oh, come on what's that in come feet on <laughs> okay you're a little yeah. bit taller than I am uh, that means that yeah. we can proceed yeah. with this yeah. So it was a little bit confusing message, but basically I, uh, I, I got a message. He, he trusted my instinct, he trusted my intuition, he trusted that I could put it together, 
because this was three years before the festival started, don't forget. You know, so um, it's... Uh, to 94. Uh, it was 91. 91, yeah. So, and he gave me seed money to start, and he... He, uh, and all the ups and downs over the years, he accompanied. And um, so having him next to me and believing in, in me gave me, of course, lots of uh, strength. Were you surprised by his reaction? <laughs> I, was, I, wa- I wasn't surprised by, by what he said about me presenting the project because... No, were you surprised about him saying yes at, the, at that moment in 91? Were you surprised uh, when he said yes? Well, nobody had said yes so far. I had had, uh, you know, I had made this fantastic brochure, well, fantastic brochure, good-looking brochure. Uh, I had four godmothers who supported me, was my wife, Barbara Hendricks, was Matt Keller, a Swiss actress, who uh, was Isabel Huppert, a French actress, and Diana Ross. Diana uh, Ross, yeah, okay. and they all had um, a tie to Verbier, either through me or through having a chalet. Diana Ross had a chalet in Verbier, and um, and they supported it. So the brochure looked good. The presentation of uh, this performing arts community looked good, and uh, but uh, I sent it out to fifty of the most important Swiss uh, companies. 48 didn't answer. Uh, one company in uh, um, in Geneva called Dupont. Kitchen pants. And uh, they said no. And what do they ne- know? Nestle, <laughs> Maher, he said uh, basically, you know, why should I support you? Why should I help you? There's so many other festivals around. He didn't say it quite as direct as that, but he left the door open. And by leaving a door open, I got my foot in there. And uh, I got to meet him. But uh, it's, uh, I, I was full of admiration that he actually could listen to me. Because I often speak with CEOs now. I mean, looking for money is something I do for a living. It's, uh, I need to. And speaking to big CEOs, presidents of big companies, they don't make these decisions. They say, in the best case, I'll take your presentation, I'll give it to my marketing department. But that freedom and that uh, intellect to actually listening, putting two and two together and saying, yes, Let's go. That's rare nowadays. I haven't come across another one. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell me that I haven't asked you? Why are you leaving Europe? <laughs> well, I'm not leaving Europe, uh, but I can tell you that it's a bit of a shit show. We're all really very embarrassed. The Brits have a lot to be embarrassed about. Uh, this is just another thing on the list. Um, but I think it's... I think it's stupidity, I think it's ignorance, and I think that certain people have uh, put themselves into a corner and now they don't feel as though they can leave that corner without losing face. But, you know, that's just my opinion. And I'm sure you're not alone, so... No. No, I, well, I'd like, to think so. I'd like to think that there are other people who feel the same way. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't <laughs> asked you? <laughs> other than my, my political views. <laughs> you know, I lived in London for one year. Did you? Was that 1972, long enough? <laughs> Seventy-two, seventy-three. Okay. I worked with a management called Ibsen Tillett, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist any longer, but it was an old agency which was the agent at the time of Jacques Thibault, or Rachmaninoff, or Casals, and, uh, and where where were the offices? One hundred thirty-four Wigmore Street. Oh wow! Okay, right. And uh, so it oh, was down from the Wigmore Hall then. Of yeah, course. yeah, it was yeah. Wigmore Street. Uh, it was Ibsen Tillett on the bottom floor and Harold Holt. Oh wow! <laughs> on the okay. first floor. Yes. And uh, I, um, when I finished school before university, I went one year to London, and um, I think I went to concerts every day, at least one concert. Wow! And this time in London 
I'll never forget. And the, um, the little community of people in my age who run from concert to concert and who were passionate about artists and interpretations and uh, when we knew an artist and uh, the following day uh, you could open five newspapers, five different critics. Uh, there was an energy for classical music, there was a, a um, I mean, it was so exciting. Concert halls were full and of, the, of course you had all those sacred monsters yes, which yes. we didn't hear uh, up in Scandinavia, you know, performing. I heard Horowitz, I heard Galas, I heard, um, I mean... It was a destination then. It you was remember amazing. it being a destination. It was a desti definitely a destination. There were lots of symphony orchestras, there were lots of uh, little concert halls. I mean, there was such an energy in town. And then, uh, and this has uh, disappeared to a great, uh, I mean, there's hardly any papers who have music critics. And, uh, but it was uh, growing up in that environment and, uh, and uh, it was, I'll never forget. And um, it's, perhaps a little bit what I like to achieve here that the energy coming out of classical music uh, is something which still can be done I think I, I think it would be fair to say uh, and I'm certainly not um, flattering you with this that I experience classical music in a different way when I'm abroad than I do when I'm in London mm -hmm. um, I have a reasonably high regard for the proms and I love the Festival Hall and I love the Barbican and many other locations in London, but it's only when I come abroad that I experience classical music at a different level. And certainly for me, one of my formative moments as a listener was hearing Trifonov uh, um, doing Liszt's Transcendental Etudes, oh, yes. which oh, was yes. just... An, an epic piece of theatre yeah. with just him on stage. Yeah. And I don't think... I reflected on that concert when I, when I came home and I kind of thought, well, I'm not sure that I would ever experience, have that level of experience as a listener back home because there would be too many other things, too many other obstacles in the way in me getting to that particular destination. So I do know what you mean. Um, and I think I have often wondered whether the experience that I have here, for example, is similar to that which I see in Christopher Newpin documentaries about Jacqueline Dupre and Daniel Barenboim, that sort of that sense of excitement around artists, which certainly in London I don't really feel. I see them on stage. I see Argerich on, on stage, um, for example, at the Barbican, and think that's amazing, but you don't get that sense of community around it. Is that what you experienced in London? Yeah, it's... Um, it's being close to the creators, yeah. being close to where it starts. I was turning pages for so many artists, Gilles, for for Ashkenazi, for that's also how I made some pocket money in in, in, money. in <laughs> Sweden. It, it was uh, wow. As a wow. student, you had to, you know, make some pocket Do money. Do you know so one of the rep uh, repetiteurs in? in the academy, a, a woman called Caroline Dowdle. Of course. Um, I page-turned for Caroline Dowdle in Snape. You really? must ask her this. Uh, and I page-turned Carmina Barana, and she was doing a two-pianos version. And, my God, it was the most terrifying experience I've ever yeah. had, page-turning. Yeah. People I, don't really talk about page-turning. I was a Hess student in Snape. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. In 1974, I think. So I, did you meet Britain? I met Britain. Wow. I was very, uh, I, uh, I was very uh, fortunate. He, um, Peter Pierce, invited me to to the Red House, to to meet. Was the cork um, wall there? Had Piers already put? No, Piers put the cork wall in after Britain died, didn't it? Do you know what I'm talking no. about? No. No. Okay. No. Have you been in the Red House since? No. Um, 
uh, on in the lounge yeah. with a very low ceiling. There's now instead of a brick wall, it's just been clad in cork, and it looks awful. It really, looks really bad. Really? And apparently that was a peers thing. Anyway, sorry. You know, I didn't I remember. I, I vaguely see the house in front of me, but seeing Benjamin Britten in his wheelchair and um, sitting down and talking to him. Uh, I didn't really see the environment. I was just looking at him and talking to him and uh, there are treasure, treasuring that moment. There are pe- I won't keep you any longer, but I'm, I'm, I come from Suffolk uh, as well, mm-hmm. which is why mm-hmm. Britain is very important to me. Mm-hmm. There are famous pictures of Britain in a flowery shirt, in a wheelchair in the garden, mm-hmm. I think the summer before he died. Mm-hmm. Is that, That's is that when, when I was you were there? there? Right. Right, that was. Uh, and there's a picture of yeah. him with Donald Mitchell. Donald Mitchell kneeling down at his wheelchair. That's that's the picture that I that mm-hmm. I recall. How exciting and actually how how lucky. I was extremely lucky, and I uh, I I wasn't there very long, about ten days. But uh, I uh, page turn for Sviatoslav Richter. I, oh my God! I, uh, <laughs> oh, you should page turn for Carol Daddle. That's really George, <laughs> George Malcolm. Um, I saw the death in Venice there. Wow. It was the second year, I believe, of death in Venice. Um, I uh, No, it was an amazing environment. I went out fishing uh, <laughs> one uh, morning, fishing crabs at right. 2 o'clock Not in the morning. Not many crabs in Stockholm or around Sweden, really, it was, I'd imagine. It was just living the experience. Because yes. the fishermen all came in in the morning and then they put up these... Um, pots down by the beach where they um, where they were cooking the crabs and uh, people came by and, and bought it freshly and uh, but I asked the fisherman if I could go out with him in uh, three o'clock in the morning and uh, and uh, did you go so, yeah yeah I went you nutter yeah yeah it was just uh, <laughs> complete nutter I uh, no no there is a, there is an air of Oldbra about this yeah. about Verbier. I mean, that's certainly the experience I have when I come here. I feel as though I'm distant, uh, disconnected. There is an emotional rush when when the car takes you up the road to to Verbier itself. Do you see the connections? Well, or maybe, maybe you, you don't. You know, that's why I come back to what we talked about in the in the beginning. There has to be some sort of artistic leadership in putting a thing like this together because there are lots of things you perhaps don't notice which of course comes from my experience of course comes from what I have lived and what I want to transmit and um, so there are um, there are lots of things going on in Verbier you can really immerse yourself in music in educational activities and I think what I really my goal is that when you leave the station, as a public, as an artist, as a journalist, that you're a richer person. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page, or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.